Hello, friends, and welcome to the Reclamation Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Colleen Johnson, and I'm here to guide us in raw conversations about thriving in life and work so that together we can step into personal agency and stop letting life happen to us. We'll cover topics like health, boundaries, communication, finances, and worthiness. That badass business you've been dreaming of, it's not so far off. The desire to wake up feeling fully alive, it's right around the corner. Oh, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to the Reclamation Podcast. I'm really excited for today's conversation. Just got back from traveling, so I'm excited to be back in my office and just having a a juicy conversation today. I've got some hot coffee in front of me here, and I think it's just going to be a really fun day. So I have some new beeswax candles also on my desk, which I'm just really enjoying. And they're just providing a really nice, cozy atmosphere today. So that's kind of where I'm recording from and what I've got in front of me today. And then joining us for today's conversation is Alicia Goodwin. So I'm going to go ahead and read her bio and we can go ahead and dive into our conversation. So Alicia Goodwin is a full-time Chicago-based jeweler who specializes in adding unique textures to her sculptural jewelry. With a background in cultural anthropology, as well as a degree in jewelry design from New York's Fashion Institute of Technology, Alicia applies her knowledge of ancient techniques like reticulation and acid etching to her more contemporary designs. Her love of complex-looking ceremonial jewelry created with minimal tools such as fire, sand, and beeswax led her to truly admire the work throughout the Mesoamericas and the African diaspora. She honed her unique style while working for dozens of major jewelry companies in the fashion industry in New York City, learning the business's ins and outs during the day while creating at night. With almost two decades of experience under her belt and a decade of being an independent jeweler in her own right with her eponymous brand, Lingua Nigra, Alicia continues to fabricate new ways to explore bygone approaches to creating wearable art. So Alicia... There is so much juiciness just in your bio. I say that a lot on this podcast, but I'm truly inspired by the amazing things you've created and just hearing about the background behind what you create and why you create it and the fact that you're inspired by you know things that have fallen away from our modern culture. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into that. And um, yeah, just thank you so much for, for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I'm excited to be here. I always love to start, if you could share just kind of where you're recording from, what you have in front of you, setting the stage of where you're recording from. I love people to just kind of be able to picture us and almost we could just have like a, like a coffee chat, almost like we're in person, but just being able to like have that image in people's minds. Oh man, I am sitting outside. I'm a home, I have a home studio. So I am sitting in my favorite place, the couch, right in the living room. And that's like a few steps away from my studio. And I have a blanket on because I'm always cold. It's like 90 degrees outside, but I am freezing. So I have a blanket covering my lap and I just have a little notepad on my lap and I'm just doodling while I'm talking to you. Yeah. And you're in Chicago, correct? I am in Chicago. That's probably the most important thing. Yes, I'm in Chicago. (laughs) No, yeah, I love it. What neighborhood are you in? I'm in South Shore. I'm right by the lake. I'm right by Lake Michigan. So nice. I'm in Lake Geneva. So, you know, about a couple hours away. Oh, yeah. That's the place to go. I still haven't been. 
well, you should come up sometime. And if you come up, I'm happy to give you a little tour. So. <laughs> oh my goodness. That'd be great. Yeah. If that's, that's everybody's little escape from the city. Totally. Yeah. It's a, it's a beautiful little town. So I would love to hear just a little bit more. So your bio gave us a nice overview kind of of where you came from, some of your background and then what you do now. But I'd love to hear kind of in more depth, what is your story? What led you to creating jewelry in this way? And what did you have to reclaim? Who, what parts of you did you have to reclaim in order to step into this work that you do now? I have been making jewelry since I was a child. I took a class and I fell in love with it. I mean, I've always been really creative and I definitely thought I was going to have a creative career or not just a career and some kind of output when I got older. But yeah, I took the class and we just made like just some rings from brass and beads. And um, when I got back to school, it was during summer, I sold them. (laughs) I sold them to people and then I moved on to like clay and whatnot. And for some reason, I guess it wasn't presented to me that it could be something other than making a lot of things and selling it, if that makes any sense. Like just there was no, oh, you know, you could do this and this that wasn't presented or I didn't know about it. So um, I thought I was going to be a fashion designer and that just took a whole other, I just went another direction with that. And so that was like my life from elementary school to like maybe sixth grade up until college. I went to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology and majored in fashion and got a two-year degree, which is and associates. And then with FIT, you don't automatically get four years since it used to be just a two-year college. So you start with the two-year and then you have to apply to get to the quote-unquote upper division. That's what it's called there. And that's the bachelor's program. And then I realized, I was like, I don't like this. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is the pits. Like, I loved sewing and I love fashion so much, like the artistry of it. But I realized the industry was just kind of one direction. You know, there are only so many people who employ themselves making and doing really well. And, you know, when I was doing it in Chicago, like making clothes and just doing basic stuff for people, everybody was cheap, you know, like how much, oh, what, you know, and I would always come across people who want custom stuff on a Woolworth budget. So my thing is like, okay, they expect me to work 200 plus hours for their outfit and not pay for it. It doesn't, you know, pay, pay a hundred because they're comparing prices. So that really discouraged me. And just, you know, the, the amount of work that goes into it and, you know, you can make one wrong cut and it's over. Not like I did that a lot, but you know, you're working, especially in the end when we had to do our final projects, they would expect you to buy really nice fabric. You know, you're buying for the time, like $20 a yard, which I wish I could, I would buy in $20 a yard fabric now, but $20 a yard fabric. And if you mess up, it's, it's over. You have to buy more or you just have to make a smaller thing. So realizing that, I was like, I'm not going to do fashion. <laughs> Let me go across the hall to jewelry. I had no game plan. I just saw the people in the jewelry department. It is really small making stuff. And that's, that's kind of how that happened. I went in with my design portfolio. I had no jewelry in there. I had no plan. I just, I didn't know. I was like, well, before I graduate or before I leave, I have like one more year that my mom was paying. I was like, let me just do this. And I, they have the one-year program available, which is 
four semesters in two is accelerated. So I thought I'd take that and just see what would happen. And I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people. It was a really, really rough, hard year, (laughs) but I learned a lot. And then after that, I just started making my own work in my free time and then um, working for other people. Because I said, if I had this degree, I might as well use it. And it seemed more hands-on. I realized that with fashion, actually, 20 years ago, I was living in New York and it was during the summer and me and my roommate decided to stay for, she was also from Chicago. We decided to stay for the summer and we didn't get job because before September 11th, I don't know how old you are, but before September 11th, 2001, you could quit a job. You could walk across the street and get another job. Like it was not a problem, you know? So we didn't have a game plan. And so I went to the job board, literal job board. It wasn't online. I'm at FIT and this guy walked up to me and gave me this job sewing. And it's not even that it was hard work. It was just unappreciated work. I did so much for like a hundred dollars an outfit. It was for a hair show. And I realized I don't, this is too much. It's too many personalities. It's not, if I could just make clothes and sell them without any, I mean, now it's totally different now. You know, I could do it on the internet, but at the time that was not the case. So I think that also changed up things. I'm happy to have that skill set in my back pocket if I need it. But jewelry was the, when I found it, I really, really, I just loved it. And I love that you can make something and money is not real and value is is perceived. <laughs> so for, for a lot of things and the value of jewelry is exponentially higher than for clothing, exponentially, you know? So I noticed that too. There were a few things I love. Thankfully, I love it, but I'm also happy. Like if I need to go and sell it, I can put it in a case, you know, I can put it in one suitcase. I don't have to carry 85 different things, pretty size inclusive, you know? So there are a few factors and I think everybody else is caught on to everybody and their mother's a jeweler or makes jewelry. And yeah. But that's really, really incredible. I'm curious. Like, so what led you from that point of working for other folks to then deciding, okay, now it's time to actually start my own thing and feeling like confident enough to do that? Because yeah, I know like in, at least in the the fashion world, I've heard from folks that that's really difficult. You know, if you have jobs, then to like start your own thing. Um, and I imagine in jewelry, I know for myself, I love running my own business and kind of have always found ways to do that, but it's not necessarily an easy thing. And it's a, it's a big decision to be like, I think I can, you know, pay my own salary. I can make this work. So I'm curious what that transition was like for you. Oh man, this was not overnight for sure. I think it happens for a lot of people in the beginning, you wear your own thing. Like I didn't really know what my style was for maybe like a year or two after I graduated. And then I made these bangles like around 2003, I was working for this woman and she gave me out of her home. She had a home studio after work. She would let me work at her bench. And so I would finally have time to fire up stuff because I had a roommate, crazy roommate situation. So I would wear my work and people would ask about it. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I would find stores to sell, do consignment when I was doing consignment at the time to sell the work as well. And that's kind of how it started. And I was like, oh, I guess I could do something with this. And that woman I was working with, she had a sales rep and it was good to learn from her because she was independent-ish. She was independent-ish. Uh, she had like a really amazing, she got an amazing loan and you know was doing all the stuff with her own jewelry business. 
and she had a sales rep and her sales rep offered to sell my work in Japan. And so that was like, I don't know how I was involved in this barter that they did because I was just her assistant. You know, she's like, oh, if you if you finish this order on time, I'll help out Alicia. I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? Like, I didn't ask for your help. So all that to say, she I made an order. And that's that's kind of what really set it off. She wanted to see a line sheet. I knew what a line sheet was because I made them for this woman all the time. So I put together all of my styles, the pricing. I went to Kinko's. I did not have a computer. I did not own a computer. I would go to the library. This is 2003. I mean, I was broke. She was not paying me that much. I would walk to and from work. And that was like an hour and change. Oh, goodness. So crazy. And I was getting paid like $3 an hour. So I put everything together and I made all this work and they placed an order and then they returned it. And I was like, um, what? And at this time I knew like I wanted to do reticulation, which is like a separation of the alloys. And so they, um, the metal creates this really, these pretty ridges and mountains and valleys, but (laughs) with the brass, the brass changes color and everything's going to look different. Not everything's going to be this goldy brass color. So yeah, they returned it and I couldn't do anything about it. And that's when I realized like, okay, let me just plate everything because it'll be one color. Nowadays, I can probably get away with it because more people are familiar with my work. But at the time, you know, it was just one person taking me on and it was very random, but it didn't work out anyway. So I guess that's kind of how the brand Lingua Nigra started in a sense, like with those, maybe, maybe I had like 15 pieces and still, I still sell Oof, I sell almost half of those still today. Those those are like my classics. So yeah, that was what made it going. But I I didn't, it wasn't sustainable. New York is weird and still weird. Like if I went back, I mean, I lived there for almost 20 years and uh, I would do shows and have made better, amazing placement. I'd have the best products that I, you know, that I could make and I would make $200 at four o'clock you know, like on the last day. So it was, it was never like a easy, an easy thing. Like, Oh, okay, this is great. But I really knew, I knew what I liked and I would always get wholesale orders. If I did a show that was really crappy, I would end up getting some kind of wholesale order from it, from a shop down the street or something, but it wasn't super sustainable. It paid for itself, but I was always working for other people. I mean, and at this time I stopped working for people as a production assistant and I crossed over to working for people in offices. So places like uh, Lee Angel, which is no longer around, this Roxana Sula now. And then after that, I was a designer at another company going to China all the time. Mind you still doing my own thing. And this is for years until I really started becoming self-employed, but then I was, I was consulting um, that started nine and a half years ago, I was consulting, but I had more time to work on my own work. And I got on Etsy and that really helped. I I met a group, I found a team and that was really great because you could just talk with other people who were really just as passionate about their work as you were about yours. So that was a really good turn. That definitely made me really want to keep on going, especially when I saw how hard so many people worked. And, you know, it's different when you hang out with your friends who, no offense, just have like a nine to five and then they go home and don't do anything. (laughs) Whereas I have a nine to five and I'll go to the gym and then after the gym, I'll get on that bench until midnight and make something, you know. And then on the weekend when I was 
working for other people. Like when I was at Lee Angel, I worked there. I had a salary job Monday through Friday. And then Saturday and Sunday, I worked at American Apparel. So I, I had a lot of jobs. And then after afterwards, I would work and, and then I would find clients. People would find me at American Apparel and like my jewelry. And then I would make, you know, okay, I made it. You won it. <laughs> and then trying to kind of peruse the stores around. At the time, it was nothing over by American Apparel except the movie theater. And it's like downtown Brooklyn. It was the second American. I'm so dating myself. It was the second American apparel in, in New York. It was such a thing. Oh my goodness. It was such a thing when it opened. It was out of control how much of a thing it was. So yeah, that that's kind of what motivated me, but it was not overnight. And then all of a sudden, um, maybe like four or five, maybe five years ago. I mean, I was, you know, when I was, when I was freelancing, I was consulting, I was making technical designs for other jewelers which aren't fun. They're just tech packs. I enjoy it. It's measuring. It's a lot of measurements and it's a lot of drawing of other people's stuff. I enjoyed it. I worked at a lot of different places. I mean, I I was able to design a lot of work too. And that was fun because I kind of made my own career in that. Like I kind of, I felt like that was my side career to supplement Lingua Nigra. But yeah, that just, the, the jewelry industry completely changed. It felt like overnight places were closing because a lot of these places were kind of the middleman to sell to places like Banana Republic and um, White House Black Market. So those places just went direct. They're like, we don't need you. Why are we paying this markup? We could just hire one designer, hire a small team for, you know, $300,000, $400,000, save so much money. I mean, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. They're saving so much, millions and millions of dollars. And let's just fly to China a few times a year. Well, why are we but so when it happened, it was just wild. So yeah, all that freelancing just started to dry up. And so I didn't really, I didn't really have a choice. I mean, it was great. I was able to really focus on my work and like, okay, what am I doing now? All right, let me do ads. Let me do. So that was kind of the turn. And then I was getting more wholesale orders, felt like, like another a door closed and another one opened, which was nice. Somebody from the Smithsonian randomly emailed me via Etsy which is also really weird. Like, oh, hey, I'm from the Smithsonian. Like, sure you are. Um, <laughs> we're, we're opening up a new museum. We want to see some of your stuff. And I sent them work and it worked out. And I don't think they knew how busy they were going to be because that's been a really great wholesaler ever since. And that was like four four years ago, I believe, when they opened. And then I have another account with them. So that's kind of how it, it definitely wasn't quick. I wish it was. I wish, you know, I wish I could say, oh, I started selling to people just when I was out in the street. And then I put in my resignation, but that wasn't, that was not the case. (laughs) No, but I actually just really, it's, I think it's really inspirational to hear that story though. And in some ways, I feel like online these days, we hear all of the stories about like, oh, I did this and I made six figures and oh, like I did, you know, overnight. And I think in some ways it, it creates this energy of overnight success, but most of the people that are actually out there that seem to have overnight success, it's not overnight success. It's years and years and years of learning, of making mistakes, of trying different things, of, you know, having multiple jobs. And I think that stories like that are actually just really important to hear in stories like yours, because it's more accurate, I feel like, to what real life is. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I try to tell people, even just finding contacts, like 
that I think that was the best part about working for other people. You learn how they succeed and what they fail on. And a lot of it is, I don't want to say that. I want to put the blame all on the owners of the companies because it's the employees too, but it's not paying attention. So that's been very interesting, but yeah, but a lot of people do, Hey, I got money from my mom. I got, she, she loaned me a million dollars. I mean, those, those are the people that I worked <laughs> Those wow. are the people that I worked for. Or my one boss who paid me $3 an hour, she got a micro loan. She was really savvy with writing grants and loans and she got a micro loan. She was able to purchase her co-op and get all this equipment. But speaking of overnight success, she thought she was going to be an overnight success. And I could see the ways where she might have been And sometimes it's right place, right time. Sometimes it's fate, you know, but there were things that she didn't want to do. Etsy was super brand new because she started in 2003. Etsy started in 2004. I found out about Etsy in 2004. She didn't want to do it. She turned her nose up at it. She wanted to like do high end only high. Like she really was trying to get into Barney's. She had a showroom and all those things that she was doing. I was like, Hey, I can't imagine anybody giving me a loan. This, it wasn't, it was a micro loan. But it was to, in my, you know, my $3 an hour eyes. I was like, this is a big loan she got. I will probably start really small, you know, um, especially since the internet landscape was so small then in 2003. But, you know, she had a website that was really smart. There's still people to this day who don't have websites when I go to shows. They, they refuse to have websites. So she was really smart about the e-commerce. But it was just interesting. Like you learn there are people who do overnight stuff and get, get really famous and you know, get really successful. And then there are people like me who you just watch other people do, but you learn, you know, I've, I've worked with so many companies and I've, I've, there've definitely been things like, oh, I would never, do, <laughs> never do that. Or that's a really smart idea. Let me take, let me take that with me. You know, let me take that experience with me, what they did. If you're learning, because people would say, when I would tell them I have my own business, they're like, why don't you go to business school? Real life is a much better education. <laughs> oh my goodness. And these are people who've never been to business school. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what? no, no, no. That's, I'm not spending any more money to learn something like you're never going to get that real life experience and the struggle. And, you know, you have to make it work, especially in a city like New York, you know, so. Yeah. Well, and I feel like just like hearing you as well, it's beautiful to recognize that you like you have a passion in there and have developed a passion because the passion seems to be what has carried you through. And I think that's something else with a lot of small business folks. If there's not success within a short period of time, the initial like flame almost burns out. But it sounds like you had like this drive and this flame and this there's there's something there that has kept you going throughout all these years and that you know resulted ultimately in being where you are today. And I feel like that's such an important piece for like small business owners, for creative folks, for anyone who wants to, you know, kind of branch out on their own is like, well, what is that spark? What is that thing that's going to carry you through when things are, you know, coming up differently than what you thought. Yeah. Cause I mean, there've been, t- and there, I think I noticed like with people who I thought were super successful and, and it's hard to, they were because success isn't always about money, just that they have this beautiful work that I was able to see and appreciate that makes you successful, you know, and you're, you're able to translate your vision from something. And I haven't said this in a long time, but I would always say it's just wild that people buy things that, are coming out of my head, you know, like this isn't, I'm not copying 
it's from my head and it's, I'm making a living from it just like a writer. But yeah, I think it was a, a shock. I saw it with the woman who didn't pay me that much. She was running out of, she, she wasn't doing so well at the end. And she had to start in, she had to start selling her work at Union Square, but she was making money. And that's, that's the funny thing. Like she's good. It kind of just kept on doing that. But I also think her upbringing, she probably didn't want to sell in the street. I'm sure her dad would have looked at her. Dad was a doctor. It was just a whole bunch of stuff, but she could have kept on doing that. And I worked for another really super incredible, super talented jeweler who sold in Barney's rest in peace, Barney's. And I'm thinking he's, he's doing it and he's teaching classes. And he's teaching his technique to pay, to pay his employees, you know, like he's doing okay, but not okay. <laughs> and he said that. And I was like, wow. Okay. I thought you wanted us to teach because you like it. Oh, you just teaching because, okay, you got to pay these bills. So there's always going to be a hustle mentality and not in the negative light, if that makes any sense. Like you're always, if you're passionate about it, you're going to want to keep on doing it. But yeah, and hopefully it'll make some, hopefully it'll make some money or there'll be some kind of branch. Like maybe if jewelry wasn't the way for me, maybe I would still be consulting. You know, it would, it was always going to be jewelry though. Always. Yeah. I love that. And so I know today, like our primary topic is, is like reclaiming my voice by carving out space for me in work and life. And I'm curious as we've heard kind of some of your story and as you've been sharing these different pieces, what does that mean to you? Like reclaiming my voice by carving out space for me in work and life? Ah, well, <laughs> 2020 was a lot. And it's funny, the year before, I traveled over 20 times. I was flying all over the place with my work. I was really burned out. And I said, 2020 is going to be the last year I do this craziness. Like, this is it. I'm going to have to figure out something. And then boom, you know, March right (laughs) and and all the shows just stopped and I was like oh okay that was not what I was expecting but let me just take this in let me nap let me chill out let me go on walks uh I mean I live in Chicago but I'm not really here I'm usually in New York I mean the like two months before that I was in New York for a month or, or in California so I just I was like let me let me just chill out. Let me have time to draw things. And, and it was really nice because I was on a sell, sell, sell so much that I couldn't think. (laughs) It was really nice to hang out. I got to, I mean, once things opened up a little tiny bit, I was safely hanging out with, I have a lot of jewelry friends. He obviously, oddly, I don't, I have a few jewelry friends in New York, but I have a lot of my jewelry friends live here. We were able to hang out and we were all saying how nice it was that we weren't tired after hanging out because usually you're at a show and after eight, nine, 10 hours of selling under, you know, gross fluorescent lights or outside in the weather and talking to people, you want to go and eat, but you're tired, you know, like you want to hang, but you want to see your friends because you never see them otherwise. So that was interesting. So I've just been trying to just do more just dates with my friends and talking to them, even though we still talk about business because it's just passion. I've definitely slowed down. And I mean, the summer has been a little rough and I'm like, oh, maybe I should have done a show, (laughs) but I'm still really happy about it. It's just really like being on the other side at least for this year and really saying no to any obligations. I think I just, I taught, which was, it was still so fun only because 
the environment was really a really amazing, like positive environment. And they fed us a lot. So it didn't feel like work. And the fact that you're teaching people who want to be there because they're adults, <laughs> you know, nobody's been like, I don't want to like, no, you pay for this. You're going to show up. So it was, it was definitely a different kind of experience versus, and no shade to, I teach, I teach all over, but when I have time, but like to FIT and the non-hands-on like computer classes, it's just different. So I've just been, I've been definitely trying to like exercise more, yeah, go on walks, just play around. I haven't, I wasn't able to do that for several years. If I made something new, it was because a customer was a genius and wanted something like, oh, this earring needs to be a necklace. And okay, I'm going to put that in the line. You know, that's kind of how it it would, it would work. Or I'm a masochist and I like to sign myself up for things when I don't have inventory. So it forces me to do That's That's how I do show. I'll sign up for a show knowing I have no inventory or have nothing. And then that makes me make it. We're just so bad, but I get, I get stuff done, but it, it was never new work, you know? So it was nice to just slow. It was really nice to slow down and not have a schedule. I don't really have a schedule anyway, thankfully, but I was just able, I was able to put a small, tiny, teeny, tiny team. The two of my friends, they're in jewelry. We get together every Monday night. It was going to be today actually, but Monday night and talk about the work and what we could do better. We go through customer emails. We just go through our spreadsheet. So that was, it was helping me get more organized and also take things off of my plate because last year was bananas. Like my, my sales were triple that of the year before. And it was just, it was just me. So yeah, I definitely needed a break from all of that, you know, until I can figure out a better system. So that's how I reclaim it. It's kind of like a lot of naps. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that so much. And that's so interesting. So can you clarify your sales tripled in 2020? Yeah, in 2020. Dang. So it was almost like, this is just my brain making connections here, but I feel like sometimes we we feel like the go, go, go is how we end up actually creating money. But sometimes it's the slowdown. One of my coaches uses the phrase like slow down to speed up. And it's, I mean, it's that's a, a common phrase, but it's just this, idea that when we slow down, it actually does create that space for creativity. It creates the space for our mind to settle and new ideas to form. And that's just really interesting. Like your sales tripled in a year that you were forced to slow down. And I'm curious how that lands with you. Oh, well, it was bittersweet because it was because George Floyd was murdered. So it was just like all this, the, 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 uh, the effect and the attraction of black makers. That was, that was a flash in the pan. All those things just went away. It was really it was really weird. Like my all, and it happened to all my friends and some friends just disabled their Instagram and all that because they just couldn't take it. So, you know, if, I mean, I bought a car, so that was good because we needed one, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was weird because you're trying to mourn, but you also had to pack and it was COVID. So things were slow and postal system because somebody was trying to slow down the mail. It was, it was just all these, it was way too much going on last year way too much but it came at a good time for sure because I was definitely stressed and in March I was really stressed but June it was it was bananas it was bananas and the thing was I wasn't turning it off you know I was like oh how many of these can I make all right I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep on selling until I don't sell anymore you know and the person from Etsy's like maybe you should stop you have a thousand orders maybe you should stop I was like you're stressing me out don't email me back until next month thank you 
you know, she'll take it. Who knows what, what next month will, you know, like, yeah, no, I, I definitely, I took it as, I took, took it as much as I could. Hey, hey, it's Megan here. We'll get right back into today's conversation. But before we do, I'm here to let you know just a little bit about my life coaching and creative consulting. As a coach, I work with creatives, misfits, and holy outsiders who often feel trapped in overwhelm, overgiving, and fear, but who also have a passion for doing something meaningful in the world. These folks are ready to hand back their past programming and rise as the leader of their own life. If this sounds like you, and you are so ready to start your own reclamation journey, let's chat. I invite you to book a free consultation with me at my website, megscolleen.com. That's M-E-G-S-C-O-L-L-E-E-N.com. Let's dive back into today's conversation. I appreciate you kind of speaking that out as well. And that is just like a, a very, like a double-sided coin, I suppose, where, you know, you were able to have that influx in your business, but also it's really unfortunate that that influx had to happen after something that, you know, clearly a lot of people were feeling stirring, like, oh, support black makers. And then like you were saying, it was a flash in the pan. And I'm curious how that has come afterwards. If you're opening, open to sharing, like for 2021 has like, have you noticed things have shifted? Not so much. Like what, how has that been? Nothing shifted. It's been weird. Like the most I've seen happen are all of these cohorts, all of these groups that are happening that you have to apply to, that it's a 21 week thing. You have to have all this paperwork. And then at the end, you don't get any money. Like my thing is, okay, we see the disparity. Just give me money. You know, don't make me jump through hoops. And that's what, that's what's been going on. Or at the end of it, you might get money or it's (laughs) $5,000, which you have to give the man 2000, you know, like it's not even, if it's not 50 or 60 or a hundred thousand, why are we even, I'm so not, I'm I'm very vocal on Instagram about it. Or, you know, there, there've been residencies that open up, but there's no way to get to them. You know, they'll say for black artists, oh, you can have a residency, which I would, I've been looking for just to get away and make work, but how am I going to get there? This is just a room. You just let me stay in a room. I could do that here. <laughs> I could stay in a friend's house. Like what is, what's the benefit? So yeah, there've been contests that I've been like a finalist in and didn't win. And they're like, oh, you can apply it. You can apply. We're going to have this next year. Go to apply. It's not there anymore. And I'm not surprised. I email, I'll, I'll, you know, and, and I knew the way things are set up, like that particular one, they had a specific email for it. So you couldn't contact anybody in the company. <laughs> you just had to contact that random email that they made for this particular thing. And at, at that, I, I just knew, I was like, they're not doing this again. This is just, it's for show. It's a Band-Aid on a much bigger issue that nobody wants to address. And then I'm the vocal person. I was like, I wasn't going to win anyway, because I said all this stuff and I'm sure nobody else said it. So it's been something (laughs) at this point. I'm just like, just give me money. Just give me money with no strings attached, you know, or there's some, and I see some people take real full advantage. There's some jewelers who have won every single contest that I have seen. I'm like, aren't you sick of winning? (laughs) I guess not. They got the memo. I did not. But yeah, just even there's like the Vogue fashion fund. I went for an info thing about that. 
And people were asking like, oh, how much is it? They're like, oh, we can't disclose that. You don't know. What, why? And it was such, it was a long application. And I still don't know how much these people got, the people who won. I was like, I'm not filling out anything else with this random arbitrary prize at the end because they said, you know, people, yeah, I can't. I'll it's go like on keeping on. things behind closed doors and not having a transparent communication. Not at all. Not at all. So if that's, that's how that's, <laughs> that's how that's been going, you know? Yeah. I'm curious and we can kind of take this a couple of different directions, I suppose what's coming up for me are those two, two thoughts and you can, you can just tell me what you think. So I'm curious, like amidst all that, what does reclaiming your voice look like for you kind of amidst that, if that makes sense. And then also kind of the other thing is, is like, as you see other artists and other creators and, you know, specifically as you were talking, you know, it's kind of come up like black makers and black artists and stuff. What does it look like for them to reclaim their voice amidst this? I'm, I'm just curious kind of where you, you feel like would be appropriate to take it and where you feel like you're, you're feeling a stirring to take it, I suppose. Um, I mean, I think I can, uh, maybe the first, the first, the, the former, is that it? I mean, I feel like I don't know if I've ever had to reclaim the voice. I don't know. Well, I guess from last year, it felt like a little bit of control was taken away. And I'm just thinking of all the ridiculousness, like people making funds for Black people. Like there was uh, somebody who made a jewel, asked all these different jewelers, asked no Black jewelers to um, give into the scholarship fund for FIT. And then when three black jewelers, including myself, spoke up about it, they only reached out to one (laughs) and ignored me and the other one. I'm like, I work there. You know, it was just. But anyway, I guess kind of saying no to a lot of things, you know, all these opportunities, just because they're opportunities don't mean they're good opportunities. And it's definitely about my time. It's always been about my time. And that's even though. Time technically, rich people say that though. Prince said their time doesn't exist. But uh, <laughs> when when you're rich, you can say that. But when you're self-employed and you know still trying to map out things month to month, time does exist. So kind of taking back my time because there was a. I mean, when I tell you, I applied to so many things and everything was different, and everybody wanted something a little tiny bit different and the end result was nothing worth me doing for the most part. I don't want to say for everything. Some things were good and beneficial, but it's more so a time thing and kind of in my head saying no, but also knowing that promise I made to myself in 2019, like I don't want to run around to do a million shows every year. So what is like, unless I'm going to meet somebody, you know, unless somebody gives me a hundred thousand dollars or more, like most, most of these companies are struggling because we don't, we don't have capital and getting access to capital and just getting that hundred thousand dollars that a lot of people get from their parents or their uncles or, you know, quitting their job or selling their, their stock. So it's just, it's that, I don't know if I answered that or not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's just so much of just kind of navigating what's in front of you. Yeah. Also, because it was a really big project I did. And in the end, it was such not on my end, because I will see things through. I'm never even as a child, I've never been unless I really don't like it. I've never been a quitter. I will if I start something, I finish it. That has always been how I, I was. And I never I didn't have a really good feeling about this particular project It was for a TV television channel 
And it was the worst communication, not on my part, but on the salesperson's part. And I followed it through and I wasted a lot of money. And that was one of those, okay, I wasn't even really feeling it to begin with. It was the potential. It was one of those things too. And I think we get caught up in the, this could be, you know, but also people not listening. And I, it's so hard because you're people are, like I've given, I've been, I was given fake, given this oppor- that opportunity, but no one was listening to me because they were so used to their particular formula. And I'm telling them, oh, this isn't going to work. You need to do it this way. I don't even own a television. So how am I even going to watch this? You need, to, if you do it this way and buy this, this will do well. And no one listening. And then it just falling through and then them coming back like, oh, we should, we should do it that way. It's too late now. I ran out of money. Like, there's no, why am I doing this? Like, I'm no, I already invested that much. And, you know, so yeah, it was, it was, it's a lot of, it's a lot of that too. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of folks make assumptions that there's kind of endless opportunities when it's not always the case and endless resources when that's rarely the case. So I'm curious, I know we're kind of getting towards the end of our time together. And I'm curious, kind of like with all of these experiences that you've had, witnessing that you've seen of this industry over, you know, the course of the the time that you've been in it. And really since, you know, I think you said you were six years old, something like that, like really young, that you've been like aware of, you know, your joy of making jewelry. Like what are three empowering tips that you would recommend for folks who are in the creative sphere, who are potentially making jewelry, who are, you know, wanting to start their own business and to reclaim their voice in the process? Yeah. Like what are three empowering tips that you would have for someone? One, do your, do your own research. (laughs) I'm not a selfish person. I will give resources But I mean, I'll give resources to those that I think deserve it. So maybe I'm a little selfish. Only the people who've like worked really hard, who've done the work. I get DMs all the time from people like, how do you do this? How do you do that? They've never been on my website that, you know, like basic stuff. Like somebody the other day asked about my work is made in brass, but all you have to do is click on one Instagram post and you'll know this gold plated. All you have to do is go to my website, you know, the plating, like, what do you mean gold? Like, okay. Why don't you, and I, I'll suggest a website, like there's, you can ask questions there. So do your research. I still do it. It's nice. I do have a nice network of people now. So that's number one. There's a one A so if you can, if you, and this is not an Etsy ad, but if you're on Etsy, join a team. If you, you know, if you might live somewhere remote, you can ask around there. And also one B join, if you don't have a studio in your home, join a studio. Like there's so many people you could ask from, but also don't always ask people really literally do your, like buy books, books, jewelry books are so cheap. Now, back in the day, there were only a few and they were so expensive and you couldn't buy them online. There's so many books and resources that it really, it kind of doesn't make any sense. Yeah. To not know just the basics to be nice. I feel like that's kind of a given. I mean, if you're not a nice person, then it won't come off. It, it'll be it'll be seen through. But be nice, and that I guess that pivots to the number from the number one. Be nice, and also share. Like if you if anybody's on my Instagram, which is Lingua Nigra, I share a lot. I I feel like 
<laughs> there's so many people in the world. There are billions of people. You know, there's enough room for everybody. I want, if I love it, I want you to love it. And I've gotten, when I tell you, I've gotten so many friends off of like real friends off of Instagram. I mean, I have so many friends from Etsy teams who are like my best friends. So many friends from Instagram, people I've visited. <laughs> like I've visited when I've been in other states just from a mutual affection or admiration of our work. So be nice, but I guess that's also like 2A is a networking thing, but not really because I hate that word so much because it's so disingenuous. But when you do it, you don't even know you're doing it. I had a, a friend in college who would do it. It was just so, it was just a little slimy. You know, she would have a card and she, it was just, she was out for networking versus, oh, you do that. Oh, my cousin does that. Da, 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 da. Yeah. Relationships. Right. Right. Very organic. Number three, don't give up, but set goals. I have monthly income goals. I'm salaried. So I have to, <laughs> I have to make a certain amount of money to pay myself on payroll, but I set goals and I have a calendar. I'm really bad about it though. I have a calendar and a newsletter that helps because it's, it's super old school. I I have it. I mean, you have to set goals, but with that, you need to figure out how you're going to sell your work. Are you going to sell it via Instagram? Are you going to sell it every day? That's going to take up all your time. Are you going to have a website? Are you going to sell it via your newsletter only? There are people who do that and make a killing, but you have to have a good newsletter. So setting goals and sticking to them and having good deadlines is really, really important. Even if you are late by a little bit, because people are, whether you like it or not, people are looking and watching and they will put it, they will set their watches to it and their calendars. And I do it for certain drops that people make. And you don't have to have a big following. You can have four or 500 followers on Instagram or Facebook and 3B, 3C. Don't be discouraged by a low amount of followers, but be on social media. But set goals just in, you could do, you know, five years out, but short term might be better for some people because it, it does get overwhelming when you do like super long term, especially now, you know, since nothing, nothing has ever been certain, but, you know, last year really, let us know that. (laughs) So I think that helps. I feel like one thing that I heard in addition to that, kind of just from what you were sharing in the different pieces was like boundaries, like with the whole, like share, but also do your own research and like be like, essentially it's like be mindful of other people's boundaries, but then have your own boundaries and just kind of like know where you're willing to share and where you're not willing to share. Does that sound accurate? Yes. It does. I mean, cause some people, people will, sque- some, some people will squeeze you, squeeze you dry and they'll tell you a lot of people telling themselves like, I've, and it's been hard to hire some like hire people for, to assist. I mean, also cause it's out of my house, but you know, people will tell me straight up, like, I want to make exactly what you make. I want to make jewelry just like you. Like what? <laughs> Why would I want you in here making my, I'm already making my jewelry. I don't need you to make Lingua Nigra 0.2 or 2.0. So, you know, people will tell on themselves, but yeah, yeah. So I've definitely, I definitely have a boundary for that. Yeah. I don't even think, I don't even think of it as a boundary, but it is. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So wrap up questions. You've shared a little bit of this already, but what is one way you slow down amidst our busy world? Naps, naps. I also, I used to, before I would outsource it to an assistant, I used to pierce beetle wings and just watch 
Netflix or something. But now I just, I take naps or I sit on the couch and sketch. I really, I get, and I love doing it on a gigantic piece of newsprint. And so I can just do a design development and just go across and just draw as much as I want to. And it's, I don't know, that's still work related though. But, <laughs> but sometimes our work is actually relaxing and some, and it sounds like, like when you slow down, those, sometimes those artistic pieces kind of flow, your mind has the space to actually create. So that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's just really, it's really fun for me. So I'll do that. Yeah, I'm sure there are other things. And I, I go to museums a lot. I, I really try to get out there and see new things, but I really love going like the art. I mean, nothing no hate to Chicago, nothing beats New York museums. And But going to like the Art Institute, I'll go, I like to go to see, like I saw the Bisa Butler exhibit three times. I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She does quilts, but they're like photos. It's beautiful. It looks like a painting, but it's all fabric. So that just went, that just closed, but I went three times. And then while I was there, I went to like the medieval section to see the chain mail because it's insane to me that people would, to battle with this heavy, the armor and then the chain mail and, you know, but it's metalsmithing. So, and then the horses with the the armor, I'm like, just, I would not be doing that, you know? So it was just incredible because it wasn't that long ago, but you know, I just, I love seeing handwork just wherever I go and not even to just not to gather inspiration, just to see what people did with before electricity, So, you know, electricity is still relatively new on our timeline. So, yeah, I just I love going to museums. So fun. When I I went to college in the Chicago area, and I know I always love taking the train into the city and just going to the Art Institute. So you're bringing back bringing back (laughs) memories. (laughs) The rainy days are my favorite. I just go in and wander around for hours. So good. Oh, yeah. So pretty. Yeah. Yeah. That was also my um, down the street from my bus stop because my high school was near downtown. So that was I would I would always get off at uh, Van Buren and State Street. I mean, State Street, Van Buren in Michigan. So then who are a couple of humans you deeply admire or folks you are currently learning from? Oh, goodness. I love the one of the first known commercially successful Black jeweler, Winifred Mason Chenette. I love her work. I'm very inspired by it. I'm kicking myself because I would always see at least a few of her pieces at the flea market in my early 20s, and I did not know, and I should have gotten it. (laughs) Should have gotten it. Love her work. Oh, my goodness. I love Bisa Butler, who I just mentioned before. I love her work ethic because also her and Carrie James Marshall, who's a painter, whose work is phenomenal, probably one of, I mean, in my opinion, one of probably the most talented, incredible artists of our time. If you see his work, it's massive. They did a, a review at the Museum of Contemporary Art a few years ago. And the thing is, when you look at somebody's scope of work, <laughs> it makes me guilty. Like, why am I here? I need to be in a studio making stuff, you know, because I always want to do like a big museum show in my head of all the work. But you could tell this man was not out partying. He wasn't out at clubs. He was making work. <laughs> it was rooms and rooms and rooms and rooms of just work and nothing None of it was like, oh, he was rushing, you know, oh, somebody gave him a hundred dollars for this. So he just did. No, everything was incredible. Like every single, oh my goodness. I saw that show so many, I saw it in New York and in Chicago. 
it was beautiful. It was an, it was such an incredible show. So to see people who work like that is is just really inspiring. And they made business of it. And I know, I mean, it, it's. I love to tell people that like being an artist and being artistic shouldn't be an anomaly, and making a living from it shouldn't be an anomaly, and it shouldn't be super super hard. But you definitely have to be focused. And I tell that to people all the time in my class, you know, because people, a lot of people don't think that they can make some kind of a living. And then you go to these, these, I mean, the people in the museums are an anomaly, but you know, there, there are other people, these uh, galleries and whatnot that are making a living. I mean, his paintings are millions of dollars now. So, and he didn't start like that. And he's still, I mean, he's, oh goodness. He's so talented and he lives here. But yeah, those are three people right off the top of my head. I I have such a long list. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. And I love just hearing that. It just sounds like the dedication really that's required. And it's just really, um, really beautiful. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's you look at that and you're like, wow, okay. All right, no video games. Not like I play video games, but no video games, no nothing. Let me let me get this together. You know, it's just, it, again, it came out of, it came out of his head. It's, it's just incredible. So then our final question is how can we find and support you online? I live all over Janet Jackson's internet. I am on, I'm really on Instagram a lot. And now I've recently started doing uh, lives of just me working. <laughs> oh, cool. I love that. <laughs> yeah. It's just me working. And then I'll look up every now and then and answer people's questions, but I, I'm not even paying attention. It's just me working. I'm sure people are like, Oh, I'm getting out of this. Like, what did I just get into? It's just her hands. But I was on there last night. So yeah, I'm on Instagram all the time. Lingua Nigra, L-I-N-G-U-A-N-I-G-R-A. I'm on Facebook, not that much. You can find me on my website, linguanigra.com. I do too much. I have a vintage site too, but that's just me hoarding. I just hoard. I have not had anything on there in a minute. I have so much stuff I need to list. That's also a passion. And uh, I also make cards because I used to make cards as a kid and I wanted to make stationery. So I have a stationery line, which is Black Tongue Press, which is Lingua Nigra in English, um, Black Tongue. But you can find Black Tongue Press, linguanigra.com. Uh, I'm on Etsy, linguanigra. Yeah, I'm, I'm everywhere. Everything. You are all the over sun. the place. <laughs> I am. I am. You got to be smart about the name. Awesome. Sweet. So we will make sure to put those links in the show notes as well. So everybody can go and check out your work and follow you and do some of those, those lives. I love that. Like it, it feels almost like a co-working kind of thing where you can just pop in and hop on your live and just watch. And, um, I don't know, I feel like stuff like that is oddly comforting sometimes, you know, when you just kind of have like something in the background, I don't know. So that's really cool. I love that idea. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was fun. It was really, you know, so I was, I was going to do it regardless. I was going to do it regardless. Oh, I was going to work regardless. So it all worked out. Well, thank you again so much for your time today and just for sharing your story and your experiences. And I'm excited to just be able to put this out and and share with my community. So thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for making time. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Reclamation Podcast. I hope it served you on your own reclamation journey and know that I am rooting for you all the way. If you are desiring support on your journey, head to megscolleen.com 
That's M-E-G-S-C-O-L-L-E-E-N.com to learn more about me and my current coaching offerings and availability. If you want to learn more about the show guests, head to the show website, thereclamationpodcast.com. And last, but definitely not least, if you found value in the show, sharing this episode with friends and posting a quick review is always appreciated. As always, reclamation is yours. Thank you.